Chris, let's get going then. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. You might notice that we have a whole bunch of new faces around here. So the guys from Teen Challenge, y'all just raise your hands. We're so glad to have you here. So glad to have you here. So glad to have you here. This is a blessing. Uh, you bless us by being here. Because you see what's going on in your lives is a recognition of the need of God. That many people, and I don't think any of us really get in our lives until we go to certain depths. And then we begin to realize, I need the Lord. Amen? Amen. And so let's face it. If it weren't for sin, you know, being exposed in our lives by the Holy Spirit, none of us would be saved. And so we use the issues of failure and sin, not to say thankfully I'm sinning, but thankfully God is showing me his greater power of grace over sin when I sin. And so we don't cower, we don't fall apart, we don't beat ourselves. We recognize, we confess it, we deal with it, we repent, we call upon the Holy Spirit for greater endowment of power to overcome the sin, and we continue to walk as believers. Amen? So thank you for being here this morning. We're continuing with our, almost at the end of this series, I think next week, I think we're getting into the festivals. I always say that I think because sometimes the Holy Spirit changes what we're going to be doing from week to week, but we would be getting, I think, into the seven festivals next week and looking at how the ministry of God's redemption of the world is pictured in these seven Levitical festivals that you'll see in Leviticus 23. So as anticipating that next week's study, let me ask you, turn to Leviticus chapter 23, not today, just turn there for next week, and do this. Read the chapter, and in this chapter, you will find all seven festivals listed. And the Holy Spirit will begin and tell you the day that the festival begins and the month. And so each one, you know, you should know the, the 14th of Nisan would be the first one. We'll give you that hint. And that would be the first one. And then the next one after that and the next one after that. <clears throat> and so you'll see the seven listed here. So when we begin to talk about that next week, you're not totally thrown off and you've never heard this before. But you have something under your belt having already read about it. So Leviticus 23, if you would, a little homework for next week. So let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you that you have put us in touch with our greatest need before we were saved. And that is to be saved from the wrath to come. Father, our sin had created a great separation between you and us. And Father, that separation necessitated your just wrath and punishment of our sin. Father, thank you so much that in every one of our lives at a different time and perhaps through a different way, by your Spirit, you began to want us. And then, Father, you began to woo us with the message of the gospel that someone else has paid the price.
that upon someone else has been laid all our sin and guilt and punishment. And Father, when we began to hear that word from you, through the means of a friend, through means of reading the Bible, through the means of a preacher, through the means of a song, however you did it. Father, you began to win us. As we said yes to receiving Jesus as the full, final, and forever payment for all our sin. Father, thank you for that. Father, this morning as we continue just to look at the Old Testament picture of what Jesus did. Father, we ask that you clarify our hearts and our minds. Give us greater understanding, greater appreciation, and greater ability by your Spirit to walk in our salvation in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. You remember now, the tabernacle in the wilderness had a purpose. And the tabernacle was God's dwelling place among his people. Remember, it was a tent, and we went through all of that for several weeks. And it was a tent in which the greatest and most significant ministry on earth occurred in the Old Testament. And the ministry that occurred in this tent prefigured or pictured or anticipated the reality. Because remember, what happened in the Old Testament is called a shadow. You remember in Hebrews 1.1, in bits and pieces God has spoken to us, in shadows and in types. But in Colossians 2.17, Christ is what? The substance or the fulfillment of everything of the Old Testament of God's plan, of God's word, of God's way, of God's person. Everything of the Old Testament about God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. There is nothing in the New Testament which is new. It's all in the Old Testament in bits and pieces and shadows like bits of puzzle pieces scattered around. But the difference is in the New Testament, in the birth of Christ, in the incarnation, God then collects all of these puzzle pieces of this, that, and the other, and he brings them all together so that finally we see the full picture of who God is and what God is all about. And that picture reveals the face of a man whose name is Jesus Christ. So there's nothing new in the New Testament. It's in the old scattered around. And so the tabernacle is possibly the major revelation or the major piece of that puzzle picture. Of course, remember the tabernacle became the temple later on. And what was the most significant activity of all that occurred in the tabernacle. It occurred on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest entered into the tabernacle and he entered all the way 
through the first curtain into the holy place and through the second curtain into the most holy place or the holy of holies with the blood of the sacrifice. And you remember he sprinkled the blood that had been shed at the altar seven times against the mercy seat. That lid, that covering over the Ark of the Covenant, which is the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, seven times. After that, he withdrew and came out, came out of the tabernacle, back to the people. Now, I'm skipping a lot of the details because there's so many details. This in itself would be a study of several weeks, and I don't think we need to do that at this point. And he comes out to the people. And when he comes out to the people, he blesses them. Now, blessing doesn't mean, hey, y'all have a good day. Hope everything goes well with you. It means that he brings from God to his people as a result of this sacrifice having been accepted. He brings from God tangible work and good and favor upon the people for their next year's living as a people of God, do you see? That is a picture of what is fulfilled at the cross. Now, you remember last week, we said that the death of Jesus is really a combination of what occurs in two festivals. It's a combination of what happens at, during the Passover and what happens at the, on the Day of Atonement. In the Passover, what's in view? Sin is not in view in the Passover. If you go back and read the Passover in Exodus, there is no mention of sin. But sin is there, but it's just no mention of it at that point. What's there? Deliverance from bondage. Amen? Deliverance from this king, this pharaoh, this god of this world. Who is the god of this world? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan is the God of this world. 1 John 5, 19, for the whole world lies, what, in the lap of the authority or the rule of the enemy. Jesus says, the enemy, the prince of this world, cometh against me in John 14, 30, but he has nothing in me. So we know that there is a malevolent being ruling this world by the permission of God only for a certain length of time, and that will end when the king of kings returns one day and breaks forever that rule. So deliverance is in view in the Passover. But you see, there cannot be any deliverance from bondage of Satan. There can't be any deliverance from the control of this world except it deals with the root reason why we fell under the control of Satan. And so in Passover, I believe we see the fruit of what God is doing, and then when we go to the Day of Atonement, we get into the root of what produced the need for the fruit. Do you understand what I just said? Deliverance in Passover is necessitated by a deeper issue, and that deeper issue is what? Sin. Remember in Genesis 3:6, talking about Adam, what happened? And he ate. 
at that moment, sin came into the world. The entire world fell under the domination and the control, if you would, of the dominion of Satan. Everything fell apart. Everything was twisted. Everything was turned upside down. Sin permeated everything and ruined everything as far as God's idyllic world. And the moment that happened, God was already on the move, already knowing what would happen already preparing and moving toward restoration in Christ. But for the next thousands of years in the Old Testament, he would begin to show what he's going to do. He's going to be giving us pictures and illustrations of what he's going to do in the Old Testament. So when Jesus comes, we can see that he fulfills in himself and by himself the totality of everything that God was doing in the Old Testament. So the Day of Atonement pictures Jesus' death for the forgiveness of our sin. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28. Remember that last supper, that communion meal. He says this, this is my blood of the covenant. Well, that's understandable when you're talking about Passover. But then he says something different. He says what? It's not only my blood of the covenant, but what is it for? What is the blood being shed for? For the what? Forgiveness of sin. In that statement, he connects immediately what he's going to do at Passover when he dies on that Passover with what occurs on the Day of Atonement and brings that festival, that um, uh, sacrificial death, from where it is in the calendar, and we'll study the calendar in a couple of weeks, into what he's going to do at the cross. So in the cross, he combines both, Passover and Day of Atonement. Matthew 26, 28. Jesus is identifying himself with the ministry of the high priest who sacrificed the goat on the Day of Atonement. So let me read this to you. I just said it a few moments ago in passing, but let me read what Leviticus 16, 15 says. And by the way, the, atonement, the Day of Atonement is specified and delineated and described in Leviticus 16. Here's what Leviticus 16, 15 says about this day. Then the high priest, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering. Remember? Shall kill the goat. That's where? Where's the brazen altar? Oh, well, we don't see it over there. Shall kill the goat. When does a goat die? At the cross shall kill the goat for the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil. Take it all away from out here, all the way, the veil. This is the veil that he's talking about, into the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> Sprinkling it over the mercy seat, the lid that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Thus he shall make atonement. Now, in your notes, do you have in parenthesis the word kephar, K-A-P-H-A-R? Now, that is a very important word. I'm going to try to get all this done today. That is a very important word. Make sure you see that word. He's going to make atonement, kephar, because of their transgression, because of their sin. So atonement has to do with the getting rid of or the payment for sin so that that which has been separated because of sin may be brought back together. Someone said atonement, at one meant, at one meant, so that God and man who were created, God had created man to be one with himself in fellowship in the beginning. Because of sin, that created the separation, that, that separation necessitated the wrath of God because of the justice of God. And at the cross, Jesus, having a picture of that in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, at the cross, Jesus in himself brings, remember, 
us back to God. And not only brings us back to God, but brings us back together so that in the church there is no division of race, of sexual differences, of ethnicity, and so on. In the church, all are in Christ of equal standing before God. Remember Galatians 3.28. The Hebrew for the word mercy seat is kaporeth. Do you see that? That's the cover, the lid of the ark. The Hebrew for the word atonement is kephar. It means to cover, to be merciful. They are the same word group, the same word group. It means to cover, to pay for, to put away, to make atonement. Now look at Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he had to become a human being so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Now, that's the King James, I'm sorry, that's the NAS or the ESV, and you may have an NIV, and you may say, make atonement. How many of you have NIV? And it says, make atonement. Do you see in your Bibles it says, make atonement? If you'll see in your Bible, it says, make atonement. In NAS and ESV, it says, a pr uh, propitiation. You have to be careful of that because you'll spit on people. So I usually say that back here somewhere or say it with a handkerchief over my face. Propitiation, sacrifice of atonement, meaning the same thing or referring to the same activity, not two different activities. One uses the word that has been used since King James. The other brings in some newer definitions or new terminology. I just prefer the word propitiation. Why? Because it asks people to ask me what it means, and I have a little opportunity to explain that. So Jesus, the high priest rather, makes propitiation or makes atonement, which is what Jesus does as explained in Hebrews, by sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. On the cover, the blood is sprinkled makes atonement, makes propitiation. Propitiation, atonement in an NIV is the English of the Greek, kaporeth, for the, let me, let me do that again. Well, I've already explained that. Okay. This means that Jesus is the high priest who sprinkled his own blood on the heavenly mercy seat to put away or assuage or pay the judgment of God. Here's what Hebrews 9 says. But when Christ entered as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. Remember, the, heaven, the earthly tent is the tabernacle. And so what Hebrews is telling us is that this picture of the high priest entering the tabernacle then is fulfilled when Jesus dies on the cross. And as a result of his death, he takes the blood, his own blood that was spilled, and he enters the heavenly Tent, if you would, and that's what he says here. Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, in verse 12. He entered once for all. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but there are folks who say that Jesus is still being sacrificed today. Now, you either have to believe what that says, or you have to believe what the Word of God says. So, what does the Word say? He has sacrificed what? Once for all time and for all his people for all their sin. Once for all time for all his people for all their sin. Do we get it? Do we have that? What Jesus did 
satisfied fully the wrath and mercy of God so that once for all time, how long? For all God's people, how, long, how many? For all their sin, how many? You got to get hold of those words all. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats, but by the means of his own blood. Thus, securing what? Eternal redemption. What does eternal redemption mean? It means a redemption that is given and lasts for how long? This redemption lasts as long as Jesus remains as a man standing before the presence of God as our representative high priest. Amen. We are represented in him. Hebrews 7.25. He ever makes intercession for us. He ever remains before the presence of God so that when God sees us in heaven, he sees us because there is a man, his own son, in the heavenly flesh. Heavenly flesh, remember? The new body. And as long as that eternal man, that God man, lives before the presence of of God Almighty himself, we are going to be there. We are going to be there. How long is that going to be? A real long time. Why does he tell us this? Because he wants us to be secure. So that in our security, when Satan attacks, we're not undone because our roots are thin. But we're like those mighty trees of righteousness so that when the world attacks us and when the winds and, of sin and Satan attack us and assail us, we may bow and bend. We may go back and forth. A limb here or there may break off. We may lose some leaves. But our roots will not be overthrown because our roots are in Christ and God keeps us in Christ by his mighty power, the same power that he brought us into Christ. Amen? You see, this is a strong salvation. Why do I emphasize this? Because there are too many who don't see this, and as a result, they are allowing Satan to whip them up one side and the other, and they are experiencing defeat. I didn't say they were defeated. God is never defeated. But you can experience defeat. How many of us have ever experienced defeat? Yes, yes. But I can tell you one thing. I may experience defeat, brothers and sisters, but I am not defeated. Why? Not because of Peter Davidson so great, but because I have a heavenly high priest who cannot ever be defeated, will never be defeated, and I am in him. And how many can say amen for you? Amen. That's right. You see, we need to get some backbone and tenacity and up front in the face of Satan when it comes to these things. No longer cowering <laughs> like that. I say it nicely. To hell with Satan. And all that he does. He's going there one day. I'm a heavenly man. Are you? How many of you are heavenly men and women in here? We're heavenly people. I'm never going to get through this like that. <clears throat> For if the sprinkling of blood of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls with the ashes of heifer sanctifies the purification of the flesh... If, if that put off sin in the Old Testament for another year, if it did anything at all, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the blood of the Old Testament on the Old Testament kaporeth. What is a kaporeth? Mercy seat. Mercy seat. The blood that was put on the kaporeth, on the cover, on the lid 
of the Old Testament mercy seat was only a temporary satisfaction which anticipated and guaranteed the permanent through the blood of Christ on the heavenly Kippurah. Amen? Amen. Again, Hebrews. And by the way, those of you who've been in this whole series about the tabernacle and the priesthood and the furniture and the, the festivals that we'll go through, go back and reread Hebrews, and I think it's going to mean a whole lot of difference to you when you begin to see these relationships. Hebrews 9, 23, 28 summarizes the result. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things. Remember the copies? Tabernacle, the priesthood. Remember that? The bulls, the goats, the furniture, the menorah. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the brazen altar, the labor. You remember all that, copies. It was copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. They had to purify this because of sin. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into the heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's there for us. He's there for us. For us. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Ah, look at that. No more sacrificing repeatedly of the blood of Christ. No more repeated sacrifice. It is an abomination. It is a work of the devil. It is demonic theology. Why can I say that? Because it takes what Jesus did satisfying the the, the, the mercy of God forever, John 19, 30, for it is finished, and says it is not over forever. It still needs to be done. It still needs to be done. Well, we have to either accept what the Bible says or go with contrary information. You see, the freedom here is this. Our sins have been paid for in the blood of Christ if we're believers. Our sins have been paid for. Nor was it, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's look at the victory that is pictured in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's, as I said, temporary provision for his people's sin through the continual sacrifices that culminated on the Day of Atonement so that God might dwell with them. All of this for what purpose? So God's original intention for man, let us make man in our image according to our likeness in Genesis 1.26. That is God's original purpose, God's original intention, the reason he created the heavens and the earth and put man upon the earth in the Garden of Eden. Why? So that he could have a people in whom and with whom he would communicate and commune so that in this people the person and the work of God himself would be clearly and compellingly and consistently demonstrated through this people who are my people so that on the earth there would be a community of people who would be picturing the community that God has within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the church is all about. We are a community on earth to picture God's heavenly community of himself.
And when that fell apart, God is going to bring it back. When Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall, what? God puts it all back together again, amen? God puts it back together again. And not only puts it back together, but actually makes it eternally better. You see, the Day of Atonement was the most solemn and the most significant day for the nation. Every Day of Atonement, every year, everything depended upon the sacrifice that the high priest made as acceptable to God. If the high priest made a sacrifice that day that was not acceptable to God, that meant that the sin of the people would be judged the reason the nation continued year after year, which is inexplicable to me given their history, is the mercy of God through this sacrifice that not in and of itself did anything, but in and of itself anticipated and guaranteed this one sacrifice of his one son once and for all time. That's what kept the nation going. That's what keeps us going. How many of you are glad that it's not how well I obey God that keeps me going. Now, do we believe in not, do we believe in uh, you can do what the hell you want to? No way. No way. But we are saved by the power of the shed blood and we are kept by the power of the Holy Spirit who applies that blood to us and we are kept by his power. That's why I and you can continue to walk in holiness and obedience and when we sin, we can get back up having confessed and repented and move continually along with God. Amen? That's why. You see, if it wasn't accepted, the high priest would return from the Holy of Holies. It was, was accepted. The high priest would return from the Holy of Holies. But if it was not accepted, he and the nation would die. You see, everything of eternity, everything of God's purpose... Everything that is anything and ever has been and ever will be anything at all was wrapped up and held in the balance on that day when that man died on that cross. Because the death of that man on that cross was God's means of accepting us maintaining us and giving us eternal life. Everything depended upon that one event on the cross. You see, however, Yom Kippur, remember, the Day of Atonement. I use a couple different words so we can hear it. You've heard of Yom Kippur. Yom meaning day, Kippur meaning a cover. Remember, the day of covering. Yom is the word day. Yom Kippur waited the day of fulfillment in Christ. Every Yom Kippur said, this is temporary, but the permanent is coming. The next year, this is temporary. The permanent is coming. Every year, thousands of years, the temporary is what? This is temporary, but what? The permanent is coming. So what does Colossians 2.17 say? I've just quoted it. Remember, don't let anybody put you under bondage with verse 16 about food and days and all that. Why? Why? Because Christ is what? the substance of fulfillment, the gathering together in himself, comprehensively fulfilling everything that was of the Old Testament. You 
See, when the high priest entered through the curtain into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice, he sprinkled it on the Kaporth and then returned to the people. Remember that? He came out. Remember the tingling of the bells? You see, this is a shadow of Christ, our high priest, who offered himself as the sacrificial lamb. Remember what does John 1, 29 say? Remember John the Baptist? Remember the baptism of Jesus? And John's out there baptizing, and all of a sudden he sees a man coming. There are all kind of people coming to John, all kind of people. This isn't a day when just one man walks up. There are hundreds of people coming to John. He's baptizing, baptizing. And all of a sudden, out of the crowd and even within the crowd comes one man, one man. He doesn't come up like the movies, tall, gothic, blonde hair, you know, six foot eight, you know, whatever. Kind of like John over there, kind of a big guy. You can see him over everybody else. He doesn't come like that. He comes as a Jew. Not even a good-looking Jew. Oh, that offend you? Go back and read Isaiah 55. He had no what? Form of comeliness that what? Wait, you're a good-looking guy. I can follow you. I like your looks. He could have been even ugly. And with that, I can identify. Right, Bradley? You and I are in that one, man. Well, look at Bradley Dunn. I mean, a face like that, a face like ours. <clears throat> Our faces stop clocks. <laughs> When we went to Russia years ago, I had to sneak up a mirror so I wouldn't break them. You know, bad reflection on me. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, whatever, I'm sorry. You see, but Jesus entered as the Lamb of God. So what is John? All those people coming, and all of a sudden, he sees one man. And the Holy Spirit says to John, there he is. What must John have felt? There he is. Thousands of years and millions of people waiting for this one man. There he is. Jesus says, among women, there's no greater man born than John the Baptist. Why? Because of all the prophets, all the kings, all the priests of the Old Testament, none of them could say, there he is. None of them. John didn't do any miracles. So you see, miracles attest to something. Miracles in and of themselves are not the issue. They attest to, there he is. There he is. <gasps> Can you imagine what that must have felt to John? Oh, my goodness. All of what we have been about and all of our hope, James, is in that man. And not only that man, John, but Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit says, and that man is a lamb who's going to die for my people. Can you imagine? You know, sometimes we just need to stop and think and put ourselves in the people who were there. How must that have felt when everything rushed in on him and he realized that by revelation of the Holy Spirit? See, he didn't have a Bible that said Colossians 2.17. He had the direct word of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is the priest who makes the offering, but he is also the offering itself. 
So combined in Jesus is the emphasis of Passover where the lamb is in view. Remember, take a lamb, take a lamb, kill a lamb. Where the lamb's life for the deliverance of the people from bondage is the emphasis. And then Jesus also is the fulfillment of that lamb. And then in the day of atonement, the activity and the ministry of the high priest in sacrificing the lamb for the sin of the people is in view. You understand the difference here? But they're both compatible views and they both are the same, one side, you know, two different sides of the same coin. And so Jesus is not only the Lamb of God, but he's also the high priest of God. And in himself, both of these festivals, both of these types come together and are fulfilled in this one man. He is the high priest of God who takes himself as the Lamb and places himself into the hands of sinful man and places himself upon the altar of God. So you see... He wasn't forced into anything. If you look at the Gospel of John at the arrest of Jesus, Jesus is giving command. What you want? Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. What does he say? I am. Okay. What does that mean? You see, that's the name of Yahweh. Amen? Are you with me? Exodus chapter 3, 14. I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And he says, I am. And what does the word say? And they, who? The cohort. This a hundred soldiers fell back to the ground with the power of the majesty of the proclamation of this high priest. I am. Oh, they got up. <laughs> what happened? I don't know what happened, man. But, whew, okay, now what's happening? And then he said, let these people go. Take me. He's giving commands. He's in charge of his own arrest. So don't let any foolishness say, well, the Jews did this and the Romans did that. God used them as a means, but God himself in Christ was in charge of the whole affair. Just read the Peter's sermon on the day of Acts, I'm sorry, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It will tell you, this is God's work. On every day of atonement, the high priest had to enter into the presence of God through the curtain, which made a separation. Remember that? They had to go through the curtain. But... In Christ on that day when he died, what happened to that great thick six-inch curtain that hung over and separated between the holy place and the most holy place, kept everybody away from God, kept God's presence away from the people because of their sin? What happened? That curtain was torn in too, Mark 15, 38. An invisible hand took that curtain and ripped it in half so that no longer, because of the death of Christ, there is a separation between God and his people because all the people's sin have been forgiven for all time. Hallelujah. You see, Christ himself becoming the curtain that was torn in his body. I'm almost finished. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climax of what is pictured in Passover and atonement. Achieving for God's covenant people, the church and the Old Testament people, a permanent forgiveness in Christ who has paid the full penalty for all our sin. What does Colossians 2.13 say? Having 
paid. What is the word having paid? What tense is that? Remember past, present, and future. What does having paid mean? Yes, I have paid Tommy. What does that mean? I'm going to pay? No, it's something that's already happened. Having paid for how much? How much? All. Go back and open your Bible, Colossians 2.13, and circle that word all in red ink. Because that's the reason it's all. Red ink. Don't put blue and purple and green and all that. Put red ink around that word all. Why? Because what does the Holy Spirit mean when he says all? Almost all. All if I do this. When were we forgiven of all of our sin in heart of God? He did this in Christ when he died. I came to a revelation of it when I was saved. That's not the day that God made a decision. That's the day I found out about his decision already. You understand that? I wasn't saved because God made a decision in April of 1964 to save this young boy who was a stupid head. I just came to the realization that God had done that at the cross. Can you say amen? amen. You see, if I put that as my decision and what I did and how I did it and what I was doing and what, whatever about me, then that puts the burden of maintaining it and keeping it on me. And it never can. It will always fail. It has to be because Christ has done the full work. Amen? See, I thought I was seeking for Christ. I thought I was doing something. And from my perspective, it looked like it. But see, I didn't look behind the curtain. Because there was someone behind the curtain, what? Doing the work. To which I was responding by faith. For by grace have you been saved by what? Faith. And that, not of a work of your own, but it is the gift of God, lest any of us should what? When were you saved? Oh, I was saved 10 days before that. <laughs> you know, what is all that about? The flesh. It demeans Christ. Do we see this? I want you to see it. Because if you don't see it and get it inside of you and eat it and swallow it and let it digest inside of you, the devil will whip you over with guilt, which if continue, you will never be able to walk victoriously. I was saved by grace through faith. And I am kept by grace through faith to the end. And someone says, well, suppose you don't have faith anymore. Go ask God all about that. Or you go do it and let us know. But as for me, even when I sin, I'm going to rise up by faith and grab a hold of the forgiving power of God and get Back on my feet and walk in righteousness. I am not going to let the guilt of Satan throw me down. I remember one day I was walking, oh me, and I'd done so, oh, have you been there? Oh, Father, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done How many of you done? And, and it was like the Holy Spirit said, shut up! And I stopped. I, I thought that was, you know, I was demeaning God. He says, confess your sin. And then he says, receive the repenting power of the Holy Spirit to turn your mind away from sin and be infused with the power of my grace <gasps> so that you will not sin that way anymore. 
Amen? Because only a forgiven person can do that. You see, the death and resurrection is a climax. Listen to what the Word of God tells us. Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. Do you, do you see how much the Word of God talks about that succinct, finished work? Why? Because there were religions in those days that were talking about all of this stuff, continuing through all these pantheon of gods and the sacrifices and all of that. And all of these people were raised on these gods have to continue to be appeased through things that you sacrifice at altars. And the Holy Spirit says, no, no, no. Verse 12, but when Christ had appeared for all time, a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until he put his enemies under his feet. He is sitting down. Sitting down as to the procurement and completion of our salvation. Mm, but in Acts 7, what is he doing? He ain't sitting. He's what? Standing before I see the Son of Man, what? Standing in the glory of God. Why? Because he is sitting down as to the completion of our salvation, as to its sin, as to the uh, uh, payment for our sin. But then he stands as the general in charge, watching over and conducting the warfare of our walk on a daily basis. So he both sits and stands, and he does it together. As a result, we have been permanently reconciled to God. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 9, uh, 1, 7 says what? The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from how much? I didn't hear. One more time. All our sin. Throughout the history of Israel, sacrifice were offered every day. But in Christ, only one sacrifice was necessary for all our sin all the sin of all God's people for all time. Is this not a great salvation? You see, this is why Hebrews tells, the author of Hebrews tells his people, don't leave the faith. Where you going? Don't leave the faith. See you next week. <clears throat>